This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm going to talk for a short time this morning on the subject of the conscience. Um, I think it's something that's necessary for us to talk about. Uh, if there's anything that we see in our society, it's that our, our society has a conscience problem. It seems that nothing matters to anyone anymore. And it doesn't matter what anybody does, we're just sort of apathetic to it. And I think as we study through here, I think you're going to find our conscience is meant to be a blessing to us. It's meant to be a guide in our lives. It's meant to help us follow through with God would have us to do. God's given us many tools to deal with this life. And we look at it and we think, well, this, living a Christian life is really tough. And it is. But he's given us tools. And we have to use the tools that he's given us in order to be sex successful. And the conscience is one of those. If you look at the, the image on the screen uh, this morning... You know, I used to think about that in, in when we look in society and people think of the conscience. They think of the little devil on the shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder. And I didn't used to like that. I thought, you know, that's just kind of trivializing it and making light of, of what our conscience is and what effect it should have in our lives. But the more you look at this stuff, the more accurate it seems to be. That we have a piece of us that wants to do the wrong thing. And in the middle, we have ourselves and our conscience that wants to do the right thing. But we have that fleshly body that's with us. That fleshly body that never seems to go away. And it's always with us. So how do we deal with that? The conscience is in there in between our spiritual and our fleshly lives. If you sit down to study the conscience, I'm just going to tell you, you're going to study a lot about meats and you're going to study about washing hands. That's just the way it is. That's what we see when we read in the Bible. But I think if we look through that and we look at those examples and take them for what they were given to us for, I think you can see there's a lot more meaning there than what's on the surface. You know, and when we look at our lives and we think about good versus evil, you know, the pursuit of positive good versus the secession of evil, there's more to it than that. It's simply not good enough for us to sit and be unevil. That doesn't help us accomplish what God had in mind for our lives. There's a concept in marketing called horns versus halos. And when you look at a company and, and a company wants to give you these ideas that, that we're good at customer service and we're good to the people that work for us, and that's the halo there. And on the other hand, they may be you know, making their products in sweatshops over in China or something like that, and that would be the horns. And the idea between horns and halos in marketing is you bring out the positive aspects of your company and you downplay those negative aspects. You know, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to do the right thing for the right reason. And we shouldn't just hide those things in our lives that are amiss. We should deal with those things. And our conscience should help us do that, to make us do the right thing and do it for the right reason. You know, it's easy to see this in some people. When you think about 
You know, when you watch the news and this individual, and he's killed 10 people, and you think, does he have no conscience? Well, he's a psychopath. Arguably, the argument is he doesn't know right from wrong. And I think in those instances, there's some mental issues or whatever. But that's what's said about that individual. Has he no conscience? Well, he's a psychopath. And on the other hand, you have a sociopath. Same individual may have done the exact same thing, but what's the difference? The sociopath knows right from wrong. He just don't care. And, you know, we can fall into that exact same thing. Maybe not that extreme. But at times, we can have our conscience telling us one thing, and we just don't care. We've lived with this conscience all of our lives, and we have certain things that we want to do, and we're going to do those things. And that's not what God would have us to do. So what is a conscience? It's an individual-focused set of ideas. It's God-given discernment. It's intrinsic discipline. It's a discipline that comes from, in, from inward from us. And it's tempered by how we serve God. So do non-Christians have a conscience? They absolutely do. You don't have to have, be a Christian to have a conscience. The question it is, what do you do with that conscience? You can think of your conscience as where do people draw the lines. You know, in this life, everybody draws lines different. And for some people, it may be, I'm going to draw the line at lying. I'm never going to lie. I may draw the line at filthy language. I'm not going to use that in my life. For some, it may be murder. It may be rape. It may be stealing. All of these different things. And our conscience will drive us to where we're going to draw those lines. But the emphasis is on the individual and how their conscience is tempered. I I want to point out this morning, though, our conscience is meant to be a blessing to us. It's meant to drive us to where God would have us to be. This is an image of sort of where we are in our conscience. And it's it's very simplistic, and that's, that's the reason I used this one. I found a lot of others but they use a lot of different things that I thought just sort of made the situation uh, more misunderstandable. Your conscience is sort of placed in there. You have your fleshly life and you have your spiritual life and your conscience is there in the middle. And that's where we get this idea that we have an angel on one shoulder and we have a, a devil on the other because our conscience is stuck in the middle. And those things, those outward forces are constantly pushing us in one direction or the other. The flesh appeals to things that pull us from God, and the spirit tends to look toward God. And when our conscience goes one way and our conduct goes the other, that's when we have issues. Because our conduct leads us to do one thing when we know we should be doing something else. We often think guilt is a curse. That's the result of going against our conscience is guilt. And we see that as a curse. We go throughout life and we go against our conscience and guilt enters into our life and we think, I just can't get rid of this feeling. That's what's supposed to happen if we've tempered our conscience. Guilt should enter in. And we should feel that guilt. And the reason for that guilt is to drive us toward God. That's always the idea of guilt. It should drive us back toward God. You know, unfortunately, many times people deal with that guilt in entirely different ways. They don't return to God. They turn to drugs. They turn to alcohol, sex, 
all of these different things to deal with that guilt. And you know what the thing is about those things? They don't fix guilt. They don't make guilt go away. They may numb it for a time, but that guilt will return if we don't deal with that guilt in the way that we should. That's not the intent for us to turn to those things. Your conscience is actually you keeping an eye on yourself. And we have that conscience with us constantly. And hopefully we've tempered it to alert us when we're not doing as God would have us to do. In Romans 2 and 15 it says, We show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. You know, that's what we have when we think of our conscience, isn't it? It's the individual responsibility. And what have you written on your heart? These individuals had the law written in their hearts. Do we have God's word in our heart? Is that the driving force behind us as individuals in our lives? That's the thing that will temper our conscience so that it tells us the things that we need to do. It tells us when we're doing things that are wrong. It tells us when we are doing things that are right. Just as it says in the last, latter part of the, the, that verse, accusing or else excusing one another. It will tell us those things. And we will be able to easily discern between what we should be doing and what God would have us to do versus doing something that is detrimental to ourselves. So experiences with your conscience come in different forms. When you go to do something sketchy, think about those times. You go to do something sketchy, your conscience is going to tell you that, isn't it? And when that voice just won't go away, that pesky voice, I want to do this and it's just not letting me do it. We have to listen to that voice because we've tempered that and we know right from wrong. And we can't do those things and give in to that conscience when it's telling us to do something we shouldn't. You know, when you hesitate for a second and reason through simple things and decide you can't do something or not to do something without guilt, then your conscience is doing its job. You've tempered that conscience so that it tells you what's right from wrong. You know, when Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden because they had done what they had done, that was conscience. When Peter denied Christ but later went out and wept bitterly, that was conscience. When King David said, have mercy on me, O God, take not your Holy Spirit from me, that was conscience. And when Felix, the Roman ruler, sitting on his throne, trembling before a man in shackles, Paul, reasoning about righteousness, that was conscience. And when your conscience goes one way and your conduct goes another, there's a major problem. These individuals saw that. They saw that their conduct didn't meet what their conscience was telling them to do. And that guilt entered in. Giving them the idea and the, and the knowledge that they should make those changes. Now how do you lose your God-given conscience? I think there's four ways we can do this. We've all agreed that our conscience is a blessing. It's something that we want to keep. We want it to strengthen. I think there's four ways we can lose that conscience. We start with a seared conscience. In Jeremiah 6 and 15... It says, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall, 
At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. You know, the second, the seared conscience fails to accuse. It's seared. It doesn't accuse us of doing anything wrong. You're not unaware of right or wrong. You're just unashamed and unwavering from it. You stop feeling the wrongness of ungodly things. And what's the cause of this? Repeated sin causes the seared conscience. In Romans 12, 18 through 21, it says, If it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If, thine, if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Be not overcome by those things, but overcome evil with good. How many times have we gone and done something like this? You know, we take that individual and we look at him. We consider, well, that's just not my friend. He's done this, so I'm justified in doing this. And we do that over and over. It doesn't say to do that. It says overcome evil with good. Maybe that individual has wronged you. But that doesn't give us that right. It doesn't excuse us from listening to our conscience that says, you know, I just shouldn't treat people that way. And that's just one example that we see that we may be guilty of. So as we repeatedly go against our conscience and decide against what's right, we sear it in the process. Because we justify the things that we do based on others' actions. The second way we can lose our conscience is through a lying conscience. Now, a lying conscience excuses you when it shouldn't. Adam was wrong, but Eve was deceived. In Proverbs 3 and 7, it says, Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and apart from evil. Eve didn't just do what the serpent said. She reasoned through it. You know, the lying conscience excuses you when you have no excuse. It'll do that if we're not careful. Never doubt the ability of the imagination of mankind. We get very creative when we start trying to justify ourselves, don't we? And we can come up with all the reasons in the world why what we've done is okay. We're so imaginative when it comes to excusing ourselves from our responsibilities. That imagination runs wild when it comes to that. In Romans, 7, Romans 12 and verse 17 and 8, it says, Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much lies in you, live peaceably among, among men. Again, returning to that same example. We excuse those things. We base it on everything except what we were told to do in this passage, which is to live peaceably among all men. You know, one of the greatest ways our conscience lies to us is justification through our experiences. I've been wronged. Therefore, anything that I want to do, it's based on that wrong, and now I can do what I want. That's not where we should be. This happened, and therefore I'm excused from this. It says, recompense to no man evil for evil. And yet we constantly justified in our own minds. So with a lying conscience, we're constantly looking for that justification, using that as an excuse to sin. 
Our conscience lies to us and says, yes, you are justified in doing that. When that may be far from the truth. In Isaiah 5 and verse 20. It says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that's what we're doing when we do that. When we justify it and we say, This is right, this is okay because of what has happened. We're putting that evil for good and good for evil. What about a weak conscience? Now, this, one, this concept's a little bit harder to understand. If you'll, go, if you'll stick with me, I think, I think we can get through it. A weak conscience is a term used by Paul to refer to someone who is too easily convicted. Now, when we think about a weak conscience, we think about a conscience that's sort of asleep or is, is not that strong voice in our lives that jumps out at us anytime we do something that's even close to being something that we shouldn't be doing. But that's not the case, and that's not how it's used in Scripture. The way it's used in Scripture is to describe someone who has an overly active conscience. And they they may feel convicted when they have no reason to feel convicted. And so if we go through this, I hope that'll make more sense. They feel bad when they might not be doing something bad. In 1 Corinthians 8, Verses 1 through 13, it says, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom all... Excuse me. I think I missed a few verses here. Yes, going back to verse 1. Now, it's touching things offered unto idols, and that's what the issue is here. We know that we all have knowledge... Knowledge puffed up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. How be it there is not in every man that knowledge, that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol, unto this, this hour eat as a, a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest it by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through the, thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish. For whom Christ died. But when we sin yet against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. So we go through this, and what you've got going on here is you had these meats that were sacrificed to these, these foreign gods. 
And they had all of these gods, and I don't know the names of them. You know, if you think of Greek mythology, you had Zeus and Thor and all of those things. Whatever their gods were at that time, they were offering this meat to these, to these gods. And the question comes up is, can we eat those meats? And for some, they said, no, we can't do that. We can't eat those meats. That's the foreign gods. We don't want to be a part of that. But in this verse, it tells us. There was nothing wrong with eating those meats. They can say that they have those gods, but those gods don't even exist. It's false. We can eat those meats. There's nothing wrong with those meats. They're not, they're not tainted in any way because of that. And so that seems kind of foreign to us that we would do that. But you had certain individuals that said, no, we can't eat that. And I think in my mind, when I've read this in the past, I looked at that and said, you know, that's just kind of a strange thing. Why would they be so caught up in that? But if you look at it, and you look at it from the point of view of their conscience, they felt that they were participating in this pagan ritual by eating that meat. And when you put it in that context, we might feel exactly the same way. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to eat that. My conscience won't let me do it. And so what does it say in this case? It doesn't say you have to drive that out of those people. You've got to get that idea out of their mind. It said if they, if they choose not to eat, don't let them eat. Because they're going against their conscience, and they need to obey their conscience. That's what it says in this verse. So when you think of these people with the weaker conscience and the fact that their, their conscience is weaker because they tend to condemn themselves over things that may not be technically wrong that's not something we want to take from people and we'll see some maybe some other examples where it makes more sense to us they felt that by eating those things they were participating and it describes them as being weak or having weak conscience because they struggle with the concept of eating those things you know the weak conscience can make something that is okay into something bad and this is, it's a little confusing. It cannot make something that is bad into something that is okay. We can't do that. We don't have that power to do it. I can make my life more strict, but I cannot give myself more liberty. Let me try one more time. <laughs> I can't make adultery okay with my conscience as it is inherently wrong. Now, does that make more sense? I can make using Facebook not okay with my conscience because I can't handle various things about it that might be wrong. So you see, we can look at things and we can say, I can't handle that in my life. There's too much temptation there. For me, that's wrong. Now, I can't tell you, you can't do that because I'm too weak to handle it. I can't restrict you on certain things that were considered liberties. But I can't take something that's absolutely wrong and make it right in my life. And that's, that's, I know that's confusing. It took me a long time to figure that out. But it makes sense. We cannot give ourselves more liberty. But we can make our lives more restrictive in our service to God. And when we look at this, I think there's a lot more to this passage along those lines. When we actually look at it. And we think of, okay, this individual isn't really having a struggle about meat. He's having a struggle about what he's, 
he feels like he's doing when he's partaking of those meats. And what did it say about handling that? It said, don't cast a stumbling block against this person. They're supposed to follow their conscience. And where their conscience leads them, they need to do that and obey their conscience if it's telling them not to do something. And what did it do on the other side? It says, wherefore, if, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth. That is just having love for your fellow man, isn't it? I will eat no flesh as long as the world stands if it offends my brother. That doesn't mean it's wrong for everybody in every instance. But maybe it's wrong for you. And if you have that feeling that it's wrong for you to do it, don't violate your conscience in doing it. That's the issue of a weak conscience. It can make life... It can make your life more strict, but it can't make it less strict. In Romans 14, verses 1 through 3, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let, him, let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. So here we have it to the next step. You have these individuals. One's exercising liberty. One's saying, I'm not going to have that in my life. And it addresses both of these individuals. Because you have the potential for two wrongs here. You know, the one that eats should not despise the one that doesn't. You know, you're so weak, you just can't even handle eating this meat. What is wrong with you? And then you have the one on the other side. The one that doesn't eat should not judge the one that eats. You're not a Christian. You're participating in that stuff. How can you even call yourself a Christian if you're going to do those things? You see, you have both sides of the coin there. If someone chooses to live their, their life more strictly than we do, we shouldn't look at that as a bad thing. We shouldn't look at them as being weak, even though it describes them as that. It shouldn't be thought of as a bad thing. You know, the Bible doesn't even teach that you have to fix a weak conscience. It simply says you should obey that conscience. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say you should fix that weak conscience. It tells you obey your conscience. So if there's things that you're studying and they lead you to say, I don't think I can do that in my life. It doesn't say you should force through that. You know, force, educate yourself to, so that you can start to accept these things. Follow your conscience is what the Bible says. You're under no compulsion to make yourself feel okay about things you don't feel okay about. Just don't violate your conscience. And even when weak, or excuse me, don't violate your conscience even when it's weak because in doing so, you'll be sinning. The last and final uh, one is the condemning conscience, which you, uh, the, the condemning conscience when you're not condemned. Yeah, the condemning conscience just keeps beating you down, and when there's no reason to, it just keeps on. Your conscience just won't let it go, and it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you followed what the plan is for that. You you've prayed to God, you've done what you can to fix those things, and your conscience just keeps beating you down. It can prevent you from walking as God would have you to. 
You may have things to offer others, but it can prevent you from that because you're always stuck in this guilt. You know, it may even be a situation where you're afraid of hell over issues that don't even endanger you from losing your soul. And sometimes people just can't forgive themselves, and that's unhealthy. We've been given a way to do that. We've been given a way to remedy that in our lives, and we have to trust that. In Romans 8 and 1, it says, There is therefore now no not condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There's no more condemnation. If we're walking with Christ and we have fellowship with Him, we're doing the things that we need to do. We don't have to have the guilt of the sin that was in our lives. That's been taken care of. He's covered that. And we can't let a, our, our guilty conscience just keep beating us down to where we're not doing the things that we need to do because we so, feel so guilty about those things. So I'd say this. Someone who's caught with a condemning conscience is probably not walking after the flesh, are they? They're probably not doing a whole lot of things that lead them to follow after the flesh because they've got that guilt in their lives that's keeping them from it. People who are that concerned about their soul are usually not the type to constantly go and willfully sin. We usually don't see that type of person. When we're in Christ and we walk with, after Christ, we have to let those things go. You know, I'd go so far as to say we have a duty to let those things go once repentance and prayer are taken care of. We have a duty to let those things go and to move on. And to do the things that Christ would have us to do in following him. In Hebrews 4 and verse 16. It says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help him in time of need. You know, the word boldly here doesn't mean with pride. It's not talking about come, you know, come with pride before God. No, we know that's not right. But when it says come boldly. What that's talking about is come with confidence. There's a reason you're doing that. You're coming before the throne. There's a reason you're doing it. Have confidence in what he's taught us. Because that's what he's told us to do. And what's the result? You're going to find that mercy. Have confidence that that mercy's there. And those things will be forgiven you. And that's how you deal with that condemning conscience. If you're afraid over, of hell over a situation, we're def, then you're definitely in a time of need. If you fear for your soul... You need to take care of that. You have to take care of that because you can't let that guide your life. You can't let that rule over you when we have Christ available to us to cover those sins. Have confidence you've obtained mercy and found grace. So with a condemning conscience, we simply have to trust in Christ and what he's asked us to do. And we should take comfort in what he's taught the result of those things can be. We have to know that. We have to trust his teachings and know that when we do that, when we come boldly and with confidence that he's going to do those things, we have to understand that he will. So what are the fixes for these malfunctions? thought about that a lot. You know, I, I can't remember who it was. I thought back to a lesson that I don't remember who did it. Someone was having a meeting here, and they gave a, gave a lesson on one fix I think we have for this in our lives. If you turn to 2 Kings 3 through 5, it says, And it came to pass in the 18th, 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshalem, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and that he may, may sum the silver which is brought unto the house of the Lord, 
which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. Okay, so Josiah has come into being king, and in his 18th year, he goes and he says, you know what, the temple is just in disrepair. We need to build that back. Go up there and get the money that's been, been taken up and take that to the people that do the repair and get them to repair the temple. And so they did this, and they got it, and they were repairing the temple, and they found the book of the law. I always thought this was unusual. They found the book of the law in the temple. And so they took that to Josiah, and they read it to him. You know, Josiah came into to ruling when he was 8 years old, and this is 18 years later. So he's about 24 years old. And they're reading this book to him. He says, oh, my goodness, we're not doing any of this. We're not doing what God wants us to do. And so he rent his clothes. He was so upset about this. And so when you look at this, and I remember the, the lesson that was given in that meeting, the point was God's word creates an awakening. When we study God's word, when you have something going on in our lives, and we look in the scripture and we read the words and they apply to us, that creates an awakening within us. And it'll do the same for you. If your conscience is malfunctioning, study whatever it is in your life. If it's, a, if it's a weak conscience, then study on those things. If it's a condemning conscience, study on those things. And there'll be an awakening within your conscience to do what is that will of God. In Jeremiah 6 and 13 through 14, it says, For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, every one is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying, Peace, peace, there is no peace. Now the other problem you have is, you may have some bad teaching in your life. I don't know. But bad teaching will hurt your conscience. It'll excuse you. It'll give you that conscience that's dismissive of these things. And just the opposite is true as well. With good teaching, you'll have an awakening with your conscience. In this occasion, you had these people and they were going and they were being involved in all of these different things that were sinful. And what were they taught? When they came to learn and they were, came to be corrected in their teaching, what did they say? Peace, peace. There was no peace in any of this. That was one of those things where you go to sit in a pew and you go to church and say, you're good, I'm good, everybody's good. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's not what we're here to hear. You know, I need to be afflicted at certain times. There are certain times where I need affliction placed on me to correct me. Because if my conscience isn't getting it done, I need one of my brothers to do it. To afflict me in one of these services. That's what we need. You don't need me up here saying, peace, peace. All of these things are okay. Keep doing what you're doing. We're good. That's not what we need to hear. You know, I, I understand we don't just need a constant beatdown every time we walk through these doors. And I get that. And I don't think we get that here. I don't think we have every person that gets in the pulpit tell us, 
what worms and bags of dirt we are. I just don't think that happens. But there are times when we need to hear the things in our lives are amiss and God expects more of us. And we need to pay attention to that when we hear individuals teach on those things. So bad teaching dulls the conscience. They were taught, being taught peace, peace. It's all good. You're all right. And that's what bad teaching will do to your conscience. It'll make it dismissive. It'll let you do what you want to do rather than what God would have you to do. In James 5 and 16, it says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Confessing one to another isn't just confession of sin. I think we need to understand that. I, I think sometimes we're confused by that. That doesn't mean I just need to go to my brother and unload all the different terrible things that I've done in my life. You know, that may be me going to my brother and saying, you know what? I'm struggling. There's some stuff going on and I'm struggling. That may be what it is. Not necessarily just an unloading list of things. I need help. I need your prayers. It may be something that simple. Sometimes it's just saying, hey, I don't feel like I'm fulfilling what God wants for me. And I need your help in order for me to wake up and start doing that. You know, when you verbalize it, then it becomes real, doesn't it? An addict of any kind can't fix that addiction until they admit they are, they're an addict. And there's no shame in admitting we're struggling. And as long as we're here and continue to strive for what God wants from us, we're going to face struggles. I'm just going to tell you, we're going to face struggles. And there are going to be times in our lives when we feel like we're not strong. And that's when we need the help of our brother. You know, unfortunately in life, sometimes it takes pain to help wake us up. In Psalms 119 and 67, it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Just like we were talking about a minute ago. When we come in here and we hear somebody speak on something, we shouldn't get puffed up about it and prideful about it and say, Why is he talking about me? They may not even know you're dealing with this in your life. It's not meant for any individual. It's meant for all of us. And if you're not having that issue in your life, that's fine. Take the information and store it away. But if you are having that issue in your life, take heed. Listen to what they're saying. And let, let them help you if they can. You know, life sometimes rebukes us on its own. And sometimes that, that's the worst kind of correction is when life does it. You know... With youth, a lot of times it's fun that keeps us from the Lord. We're out having too much fun. We're doing all of these things. But you know, the adults aren't any better. When we get older, it can often be from a career or pursuit of money. It could be any of these things. And those things prevent us from that. And we won't wake up from that until we feel that affliction. When it comes to crashing down so that before we weren't worried about God. But now we've had this issue in our lives and we've been corrected by life. Sometimes that's what it takes for us to fix that malfunctioning conscience. In Psalms, excuse me, in Proverbs 16 and verse 3, it says, Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall, shall be established. You know, obedience will cleanse the mind, won't it? If we're set on and we're convicted 
and ready to do what God has us to do. And we do those things as he would have them to do us. You know, it'll cleanse that, our mind. It'll help clean that conscience up if that's our focus. Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That'll awaken the conscience because we're, we're focused on doing the right thing for those reasons. If you obey your conscience on a regular basis, it'll awaken on its own. When it tells you what to do, listen to it. Then do it over and over and over, and it'll get stronger and it'll get stronger. And your conscience will be the guide you'd have it to be. And when we temper it, temper it with the word. Temper it with what God would have you to do in your life. And if you do those things, your conscience is going to be that guide that it was intended to be and the conscience that we wish we had if we can do those things. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.